Today we're looking at another prayer in our sermon series on the prayers of Scripture. Another prayer of Moses. We looked at one last week by Moses, and it's another one by Moses. And the setting is uh, the Israel is in the wilderness. They're, they've been delivered by God from slavery in Egypt, and God is now leading them in the wilderness as he prepares them for the conquest of Canaan, the land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is how God leads them. This is how he guides them. This is a beautiful, vivid image that Scripture gives us to understand how God guides his people. And the image is uh, that the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, carried by the Levites, the special group of people in Israel, when it sets out, guided by the pillar of cloud, which is God's presence over the ark, when it sets out, people get up and they follow the ark. And they go as long as the ark goes, and when the ark rests, when God says, this is where we're going to camp for a while, then people rest, and people stop, and they camp until the ark sets out again. So this is, this is the setting. This is the image of God guiding his people. And within that setting, we have two prayers, one that Moses prays as the ark sets out, and he follows and leads the people, and then one that when ark rests and the people rest. So when the ark sets out, Moses prays, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. That's his prayer as they follow the ark. When the ark rests, Moses prays, return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. Return, return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. So today we're looking at how these two prayers relate to God's guidance in our own lives. Um, I realize that all of us are probably in different stages of life and different decisions facing us. Some of you I'm sure there are some here that are facing very significant decisions you have to make in your life, whether it's about a relationship in your life or a financial decision or maybe moving. Others are in a period of rest and stability, and everything is fine, and you're not feeling restless. You're just feeling, this is where the Lord has me. And there are prayers that correspond to each of those settings. And so the Lord helps us understand how we can pursue His guidance in a time of transition and in a time of rest and stability itself. So I'm hoping that this passage is helpful to all of us wherever we find ourselves. We all need God's guidance wherever we are. I'd like to look at this text under two headings, just two, two headings today. First, I'd like to consider the God who guides, the God who guides. And secondly, I'd like to look at the people who follow the God who guides, and the people who follow. Now, let's not miss the obvious truth here. And that is that God guides his people. Our, our passage shows us that God directs, leads, guides very intentionally every move of his people. It may seem normal to you if you've been a Christian a long time, you've trusted his guidance, you've prayed these prayers maybe. It may seem normal 
to you to think that, of course, God guides me. Of course, I can go to him for wisdom. Of course, I can trust that he will take me to whatever the next season of my life is and provide for me. But if you take a step back and ask yourself, is it normal, really? Is it okay that we expect God to guide us in every move of our lives? It starts to sound a little strange. Now let me give you an analogy and then we'll relate it to our Christian lives. Imagine you get a job, maybe this is your first job with this huge corporation. So imagine Monsanto or Boeing or Walmart, just whatever the huge international corporation that you can think of. And that's your entry-level job. So you, you go in there, you go through orientation, they give you a bunch of paperwork to fill out, and you're sitting there in the break room, and, and you're filling it out, and in walks in the CEO of the company. And he says, let me help you figure out uh, what tax withholdings you need, to, you need to do here, and then I'm going to give you a tour, I'm going to show you the break room, I'm going I'm to show you where you're going to work. Please ask me any questions. He spends the whole day with you, orients you to the job, and then he says, anytime you have a question, this is my cell number, please call me, text me, any question at all, I'll be happy to answer it for you, because I personally feel personally responsible for your success in this company. And by the way, I'm going to check in with you every day anyway, but if you have any question at all, please don't hesitate to call me or text me or come see me. Now, when you put it in these terms, right, that, that seems ridiculous. That never happens. It never happens. It's crazy to think that the CEO of the company that potentially has tens of thousands of employees that deals with the billions of dollars in, in their budget, that that person would take the time, make himself available to you every day, would allow you to check in and answer any questions, whether they relate to his job in particular or not, he will help you. And that that person would say, I feel personally responsible for your success in this company. That sounds crazy. But when we relate it to God's guidance in our lives, the disparity is even greater. You're not an employee in a company that employs tens of thousands of people, right? We're dealing with somebody who has created everything you see, maker of heaven and earth, all things visible and invisible, the person who holds everything in existence by the power of his word, the person who makes sure that things function the way they're supposed to function. So we're talking about all the molecules in existence are under direct control of this person. And that person comes to you and says, if you have any question at all about your day today, please don't hesitate to call me or text me. You talk to me. I feel personally responsible for your success in this life. It's, it's incredible. Now, I understand that because we, many of us have a, have a vibrant relationship with God and it seems very normal because we know him. But if you step back and you say, this God would spend time with me, that he would guide me, that he would make himself available for every decision. So when I'm looking at a job, God is going to tell me what job I should take. When I'm looking at my medical bills, God will walk me through how to understand them. When you think about it in those terms, it's, it's, it's remarkable that this God would be guiding each person in his family. 
Now, I use the word family here. Because when you think about the analogy I gave you with the CEO of the company giving you that personal attention, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because actually he would not be a good CEO if he did that. That's not his job. He would be distracted from his job by doing that. But if that CEO happens to be your father, makes perfect sense, doesn't it? You expect that. If my dad runs that company and I go to work for him, yeah, I expect him to help me with my paperwork. I expect him to answer my questions, whether they have to do with if I should take a break now or wait till later. Yeah, he's my dad, and I'm going to go to him. And God, of course, he is the creator of everything. He is the sustainer and the governor of everything that exists. Of course, he is that. But he's also revealed himself to us as our father. And when you understand that he is your father, when you get that he is related to you in that way, his personal attention, his promise of guidance in your life makes all sorts of sense. It's not impersonal. It is very personal and very intentional. When you read about Israel in the wilderness, when they're traveling and God is guiding them, there are those, those tender passages that you find where God lets us see his heart just a little bit. For example... In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 31, he tells us that as a man carries his son, the Lord carried his people in the wilderness. What a, what a tender passage. God is saying, I'm not just the CEO of the company that, that sends out memos and tells you, you guys need to focus on this project and let's cut budget there. No, he says, I'm like a father who carries his son. I'm carrying you. I'm holding you in the wilderness. Hosea 11 verse 3 says that it was God who took his people by their arms and taught Ephraim to walk. What a, what a tender passage. I mean, you, you think about these passages where God says, I'm going to spend time with you. I'm going to teach you to walk. I'm going to hold you up so you can learn how to put one foot in front of the other and you can learn to walk. That's what parents do. And God says, this is the kind of God I am. This is the God who guides us. The God who has revealed himself to us as our Father. And if you know God as your Father, only if you know God as your Father, does his guidance in your life make sense. So I will ask you, do you know God as your Father? Do you see him in, the, in those terms, in that way? And do you relate to him as a child relates to his or her father? Okay. So God guides us. But how does he do it? How does he guide us? He guides us by his presence. He guides us by his presence. Now in our text, and if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, it gets a little bit confusing, because some of you I'm sure are asking, what is this ark? I'll explain, okay? Not Noah's ark, different ark. So if you were confused about that, this is a different ark. The ark of the covenant is the means of his guidance. So when the ark sets out, they follow. When it rests, they stay. And the ark is basically a box, a wooden box, overlaid with gold. It's pretty on the outside, but it's very simple in many ways too. In that box are the tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses to give to the people. Uh, Hebrews tells us that also there is a jar containing manna, so that food that God provided each day for people in the wilderness. 
and Aaron's staff that, that budded. So that's, uh, Aaron was a priest, he was a high priest, one of the leaders of Israel, and there was a dramatic time when his staff budded to show the power of God and his choice of him as the leader of the people. So those things are in that box, the staff that's budded, the, the jar with manna, and the tablets of the law. All those things signify God's special connection to his people. These are all the symbols that God has committed to his people, that he has a special covenant relationship with them, that he's sticking with them, that he is present with his people. The ark's cover is called the mercy seat. It was decorated with two cherubim. And by the way, if you have a study Bible or if, if you have Google, you can, you can get the picture. There are illustrators that have done it for us, and it's helpful. And so the lid, the cover of this box, has the two cherubim, these angelic beings that cover the ark with their wings. Now the cherubim were responsible for guarding God's holiness, so that tells us that this object is holy. This object is somehow is related to God and who God is. So it symbolizes God's presence and his relationship with his people. But it also tells us that, that God is different. And God, this different God, is committed to his people. And this object is so holy that, in fact, the Levites were not allowed to touch it. When they built the ark, they built it with the rings on either side so they could put the poles through it and carry it by touching the poles, but not touching the ark. It was specifically designed so that nobody would actually touch it. Now, where was the ark when it was not carried around showing the way? It was put in the tabernacle. In fact, the ark is the only object that you would find in the Holy of Holies, in the most holy place that inner chamber of, of the temple, of the tabernacle, symbolizing God's presence. This is the closest you can get to God is to be close to the ark. And the only way anybody would be close to the ark unless they were carrying it somewhere was on the Day of Atonement when the, the high priest would come into that room, the only time they were allowed to come into that most holy place, and they would offer a sacrifice for the people on the Day of Atonement. And the blood of the sacrifice would be sprinkled on the mercy seat, the cover of the ark. This is a very special object. This isn't just a banner or a flag, right, or, or some visible thing that people are following. They're following the very presence of God. Basically, what God is saying is that I am with you through this ark. The ark is the symbol and the and, and the, the sign of my presence with you. So when I go, you go. When I stay, you stay. In fact, in Exodus 25, verse 22, uh, the Lord said to Moses, There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So this is the means, the vehicle of God's communication with his people. This is what they're following. The point I'm trying to make is that God guides us by his presence. He goes where he calls us. He actually goes where he leads us. He's with us as he guides us. We may think it was pretty easy to follow him in the wilderness when the ark was a visible sign of his presence, especially with the, the cloud, the pillar of cloud. 
But we have something even better today. You know, you read scripture, and I think for many of us, you try to put yourself in that situation, those circumstances, and you wonder how you would have done in that. And, and sometimes it seems like it was better then. You, you would think like, well, they saw the ark. They saw the, the pillar of cloud. And of course they followed. Well, when you read the stories, you realize they didn't follow all that much. And people who talked with Jesus face to face, and you would think that would do it, right? Everybody would follow Jesus if, he could, if we could just see him. Many didn't follow him. So when you think about our lives and you say, well, how do we know that God is here? How do we know how to follow him? How is his presence communicated to us? It's not through the ark anymore, but it's better. It's through his Holy Spirit. Amen. The ark symbolized God's presence. The glory would come down at certain times. It was protected in the temple. Only certain people could come and see God and, and talk like Moses talked with God face to face. Only certain people could do that. But now, the Holy Spirit, who is God himself, has taken residence in us and among us. Jesus says in, in John 14, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. God no longer leads us by his ark visible in the distance, but he leads us by the Holy Spirit who lives with us and in us. God's presence is even closer to us today than it was in the wilderness. Now, this is why in the New Testament, Paul describes the Christian life as walking by the Spirit or keeping in step with the Spirit because he guides us by his presence in this way since God himself lives with us and in us. How can we discern God's guidance in our lives today? We don't have the ark leading us. How can we discern God's guidance in our lives? We cultivate a relationship with the Holy Spirit. As we seek his presence, we will find his guidance. So if you're struggling to figure out today, if you're here at church and you're thinking, I don't know what I should do. I have a decision in my life, or maybe I'm just completely lost, and nothing is certain in my life right now. I don't know what to do. How would you know what to do? How would you know that God is guiding you to option A versus option B? You will know that by seeking his presence, which comes to us through the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit who is present with you always. And as you seek him, you will find his will. As you seek his presence, you will find his will. It may not be what you were expecting, but you will find his will. So when I, whenever I wrestle with decisions, time and time again, I have to remind myself, I can't just be here and say, God, why, why are you not answering me? Why are you not speaking to me? I have to go to him and spend time with him to see what he's saying. The best thing you can do when you're wrestling with the decision is go away and spend time with God. Take more time than usual with your Bible, praying to him, being in his presence, and you will find 
his will. Those of us who are saying, I don't know what God wants me to do. And then when you ask them, are you reading your Bible? No. You're not going to know. Are you spending time with God? No. You're not going to know. Be with him and you will know his will. God is not tricking us. He's not this troublesome person that is just going to give all these mixed signals to us and try to trick us into doing something he doesn't want us to do. This is not God. The God who guides wants you to know his will. But that will is revealed in the context of a relationship with him. So as you seek his presence, you will find his will. Now, as we consider the God who guides us, we need to ask the next question. Where does he guide us? Where does he take us? We're talking about his leadership, his guidance, and the ark setting out and leading us somewhere, but where is he taking us? Of course, in our passage, the Lord is taking his people to Canaan, to the land that he had promised to Abraham and then to Isaac and to Jacob, to Joseph. All those patriarchs, all the people of God were given this promise that one day they will be in their own land. It will be theirs to be the land of flowing with milk and honey. This is where God is taking them. In all their travels from Egypt across the Red Sea and the years they spent in the wilderness, the destination never changed for them. God was always taking them to Canaan. He was always taking them to the land of promise. They were always meant to end up where God wanted them to be. The roots changed, sure. Circumstances changed. He slowed them down quite a bit. But they still ended up in Canaan. And as you think about God's guidance in your lives, you need to be confident that God always leads us where we are supposed to be. His plan for us is always good. He's always fulfilling his good promises to us. The roots may vary, but the destination is always right. Because he is our Father... Because he, gives, he himself goes where he leads us, we can trust him that he guides us where we're supposed to go. Now that's the God who guides us. Let's look at ourselves, and let's look at ourselves as the people who follow him. In fact, in the Gospels, if you read about Jesus, what he did, what he said, his fundamental command is for us to follow him. When he finds a person, he says, follow me. That's his call. That's his summons to us. You follow me. There's no better description of a Christian than a follower of Christ. You can use a different word, a disciple of Christ, but we mean the same thing. Somebody who follows Jesus, somebody who lives his life in accordance to Jesus's life and teachings. Matthew 16, that's the verse we read for call to worship. Jesus says, if anybody, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's the Christian life. That's the Christian life. You deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow Jesus. Are you a follower of Jesus? Is that how you see who you are, your identity, your call in life is to follow him? Do you deny yourself? which means refuse to set your own agenda, to map out your own route, 
to wherever you want to go, refuse to pursue your own goal, refuse to get your own way, and instead you follow Jesus? Does that describe you? That's Christianity. That's Christianity, is to follow him. Now, there's something scary about it. What Jesus tells us to do is to trust him with our lives. He tells us to to lose our lives for his sake. He tells us to take up our cross, which means to deny ourselves, to say, I'm not going to be in charge. I'm going to trust you. I'll follow you wherever you lead me. So when you set out, I set out and follow you. When you rest, I rest. Jesus says, this should be your life. You should follow me wherever I take you, and you should trust me to take you where I think you should go. And the question is, why would anybody do that? Why would anybody follow him? Why would anybody follow anybody? How can you trust somebody so much that you would say, you know what, here's my life. You do whatever you want with it. I'll just do whatever you tell me to do. And the reason we can trust Jesus, the reason this call makes sense, and it only makes sense when Jesus makes it, is because he does not lead you where he himself has not gone. Jesus never calls you into a situation he himself has not experienced. He's never leading you where he himself has not been. The God who tells you to follow him, who promises to guide you, is the God who became human. That means that he came into our humanity. He came into our limitations. He came into our brokenness. He came into our dysfunction. In a sense, we can say that he followed us. That Jesus let us guide him. That before he demands that we follow him, he followed us. And he followed us and experienced the full consequences of our wrong-headed, self-indulgent, sinful, rebellious, idolatrous lives came right into it says you guide me came right into it jesus refused to save his life and lost it for our sakes he denied himself and took up his cross for us he did take up my cross before he asked me to take up my cross and follow him he took up my cross for me And on that cross, on that ultimate day of atonement, at the ultimate place of meeting between the holy God and the sinful humanity, as the eternal high priest, he spilled his own blood for the sins of his people. This is who calls you to follow him. And so it is the cross that became our mercy seat. It's the cross that became the symbol of God's covenant presence with his people. In Jesus, we have the temple and the priest and the sacrifice. And because of all that he has done, God can now be our father and he can guide us into the land of promise. So when Jesus tells you, follow me, this is why you follow him. Because of all that he's done for you, when he tells you to follow him, he says, I can trust you. Out of all the people in the world, you're the only person 
that I can trust you because of what you have done for me. He has the right to call us to follow him. He has the right to guide us, and he's earned it on the cross. And so he has all sorts of credibility, all sorts of authority for us because of what he's done. And because of what he has done, he can tell us to follow him, and we can trust him as he guides us. One writer put it this way, Jesus made it clear when he stated emphatically, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Basically, what it amounts to is this. A person exchanges the fickle fortunes of living by sheer whimsy for the more productive and satisfying adventure of being guided by God. This is conversion. This is the Christian life. A person exchanges the fickle fortunes of living by sheer whimsy. That's our life without Christ. Fickle fortunes of living by sheer whimsy. And we exchange that for the more productive and satisfying adventure of being guided by God. Are you a follower of Jesus? Do you trust him to lead you? Do you trust him with your life? Do you think that by losing your life for his sake, you will gain a better life, a real life? Are you a person who follows Jesus now? If you're not, I want to plead with you this morning to embrace him as the God who can guide you, as the Savior who has earned the right to summon you and to say, follow me. If you're not a Christian, that doesn't mean you have not been around Christians. It doesn't mean you've not been in church. But if you're not a Christian, if you don't have that presence of Christ communicated through his cross, if you don't know him as your Savior, go to him and say, I'm going to be one of the people that follows you. I'm going to respond to your call because you have earned the right to demand my life of me. And if you're a Christian, meaning that conversion has happened, you are a follower, you've been following him in general, but not so specifically, not so intentionally, I'm going to call you to a different level of obedience. I'm going to call you to consider your life and say, am I actually following him daily? Am I spending time with him to discern his will for me? Am I obeying him? Am I going to him and saying, is the ark moving or is the ark staying? Am I going? Am I staying? Am I following you? What do you have for me, Lord? My life, my plans, my agenda are secondary to yours. And so every day, I'm going to go to you and I'm going to ask you, what do you want? Will you lead me today? I will follow consistently, intentionally, faithfully. That's discipleship. Are you that kind of Christian? You're a follower of Christ. And as we consider how to do that and what that looks like, I'm going to be brief, and I will be brief, I promise, but I'm going to give you three attitudes from our text. There's three attitudes that characterize a follower of Christ. So if you are serious about your relationship with Jesus and you're saying, I want to follow this is what it looks like. You cultivate at least these three attitudes coming from Moses' prayers. Number one, first attitude is be ready to move or to stay. Be ready to move or to stay. 
In our text, Israel was looking to God for guidance. When the ark set out, they set out. When the ark rested, they rested. But in our lives, so often we associate God's guidance with movement. In other words, God isn't guiding me if I'm not going somewhere, if I'm not moving, if I'm not making a decision, if I'm not making a change in my life. We expect God to tell us to make a change, and that's how we know He's guiding us. But often, God tells us to stay, to stay where we are and keep doing what we are doing. And we need to be ready to move or to stay as the Lord leads us. Some of us are restless people. It's hard for us to stay. Some of us are complacent people. It's hard for us to move. But as the Lord guides us, we need to be ready for both and either depending on his guidance. Somewhere there's that middle ground between complacency and frustration, right? We shouldn't be completely committed and attached to our circumstances. That's not right. We shouldn't root ourselves where we are and say, I'm never moving. That's not right. We should be flexible and we should be open to God's movement. On the other hand, we shouldn't be completely frustrated and and restless where we are. We should recognize that God has us here and there's a purpose to be here. So somewhere between that complacency and frustration, we need to be. And that's an attitude of trust. I will trust God to keep me here as long as he wants me to, or to move me when he wants me to, whatever that means. And I'm not talking about just the physical relocation. I'm talking about all sorts of decisions we make in life. But I'm going to be here open to either go or stay as the Lord wishes. I remember I was involved in a particular ministry, and I felt that that we needed to go. I felt that my time there was done, and, and I was praying that the Lord will, will take me out of that ministry and put me somewhere else. And I remember praying and asking God and saying, okay, that's my idea. I have this understanding, but I'm coming to you, and I'm asking you, should I go, or should you want me to stay here? And the Lord st- said, stay. And I stayed for another year. And he blessed me in that year. He had stuff for me to do in that year. And then at the end of that year, I went to him again, and I, and I asked, should I go or should I stay now? What, what do you want? And he says, now you can look. Now explore your options. And he provided a different ministry in time. But that should be our attitude. That should be my attitude in any transition. Look into God and say, what do you want? I am open, I'm flexible. Do you want me to go or do you want me to stay? That's the first attitude, be ready to move or stay. The second attitude is to be confident in God's power as you move. To be confident in God's power as you move. As the ark set out, Moses prayed, and this is his prayer. And I I encourage you to use these prayers, by the way. These are given not just to Moses and Israel, but they're given to us as well. Moses prays, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. Israel moved in confidence that God would defeat their enemies and overcome whatever obstacles they may encounter. Now they see the ark moving, they know they have to go, but they also recognize there will be enemies, there will be obstacles, and they need God to overcome them. There's an important lesson for us here. Just because the Lord leads you somewhere, 
it doesn't mean there will be no obstacles to get there. So many of us, when we think about guidance of the Lord, we think, well, it's an open door, right? The Lord opened the door. There are no obstacles. That's how I know he's leading me there because he's removed all the obstacles. Well, not necessarily. Many times, at least in my experience and judging from my conversations with many of you, he sometimes clearly leads us into a very difficult circumstance so he could overcome the obstacles for us. Apostle Paul says a curious thing in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9. He says, For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. A wide door is open for an effective ministry for me. He clearly sees the Lord's hand in this. And then he says, But I have many enemies, many adversaries. How can that be? The Lord is leading him there, but the Lord will overcome those obstacles for him. The Lord is putting him in a difficult situation because he wants him to be there, but he promises his power to go with him. So we pray as we go into a difficult, difficult situation. We pray, arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered. Remove the obstacles. Allow me to do what you've asked me to do. Reveal your power, bear your, your arms so we can see your power as you overcome your enemies and obstacles. Look at Deuteronomy 7, verse 17 through 19. I'll read it to you. Deuteronomy 7. This is, again, spoken to the people in the wilderness as they're processing these decisions like many of us are processing life transitions and, and decisions. Deuteronomy 7, verse 17 says, If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I. How can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the people, peoples of whom you are afraid. What is God saying? Notice the logic of, of his argument. He's saying, you're looking at the, at the land, and you're saying there are many people here, many nations that seem stronger than we are. These are obstacles. These are enemies. And God says, but remember, that's what you thought about Egypt. Pharaoh was a great enemy, and I have overcome him. I've defeated him. Egypt was a great enemy, and I've, I've drowned the army. All those enemies that in the past you've seen me overcome, you've seen me defeat. Now as you're looking at new enemies and new battles, don't be afraid. Trust in my power. As you face obstacles and enemies, remember what I have done for you before. Don't you think I can defeat these nations too? Of course. Of course he can. What do we look back if, if you think about your life and you think about the revelation that we have been given and your experiences, what can you look back on to gain confidence in God's power? What is the one event where God has shown his power over things that we did not think could be defeated? It's the resurrection of Jesus. I don't think we do justice to the resurrection in our preaching. And I'm saying, I'm saying it as a preacher who's partially responsible for that. The resurrection is an event that changes everything. 
Because in it we see God triumphing over our enemies. And so when God says there will be battles in the future, there will be obstacles for you to overcome, even though you know I am calling you and I'm guiding you there, God tells you, remember what I did on that Sunday morning. Remember that when Jesus rose from the dead, when somebody must have been praying, Arise, O Lord, and scatter your enemies. And Jesus arose. Up from the grave, he arose. And when he did that, he triumphed over Satan, triumphed over death, he triumphed over my guilt, he triumphed over the world. Those are great enemies. Don't you think he can pay your bills? Don't you think... He can help you deal with your cancer. If he handled death, he can handle cancer. Don't you think he can help you in your relationship? Of course he can. He's proven himself to be that kind of powerful God. So when the ark sets out in your life, when he's leading you in an uncertain circumstance, you pray, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Because you are praying to the God who raised Jesus from the dead. And number three, our final attitude, and we'll finish with this. Be aware of God's presence. So be ready to move or stay. Be confident in his power as you move. And as you stay, be aware of his presence. When the ark Rested, Moses prayed, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. Essentially, what Moses is asking God is to be there for him and for them, for God to be present with his people. When God is keeping you somewhere, he's not moving you, he's just, keep, he's just telling you, you stay where you are. He's still there. He's not waiting for you somewhere else. He's there with you. He's not left you. So be aware of his presence. Respond to what he is doing there in that place of rest where he's keeping you. Be fully where you are. Don't just wait around for God to move you. But if he keeps you somewhere, be there and be with him. And now we're going to come to the Lord's table. And this is what I would like you to be thinking about as you come to the table, as you take communion. Here's his presence. Here's God with us. His body broken and his blood spilled for us. This is the Lord who guides us. And as we come to the table, we come to him. We follow him into the life he wants for us. To take communion is an expression of faith. It's an expression of trust. It's an expression of reliance on his guidance. We trust him to guide us. We come and we remember Christ's sacrifice and we respond by sacrificing our lives for him. We remember his victory and we respond by trusting him to complete his work of redemption. We think about his promises and we look forward to his return when he will bring us into the land of promise where we will live with him forever.